Good morning and welcome back to the Asset Allocator podcast. I'm Jez Wilkins, a writer on Asset Allocator, and joining me today are James Penny, Chief Investment Officer at TAM Asset Management, and Dave Baxter, our funds editor at Sister Title Investors Chronicle. Good morning and welcome both. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, hello. So to kick off, James, it's been a little while since uh, you last featured on the podcast and, uh, you know, much has changed. Uh, we'd like to know first where you stand on the sort of value versus growth debate right now. Yeah, quite a lot has changed, yes. hasn't it, since I was last on. Well, I think looking back on 23, uh, 23 was the year I think it caught a lot of people off guard. Recession was on the cards. Uh, rates were supposed to drop. We were supposed to have an inflation environment that came back down. Um, and importantly, value was set to carry on. You know, it did quite well relative to growth in 22. And I think a lot of people thought that that was going to continue. And um, it didn't. You had the, you know, the Magnificent Seven, the Mag Seven, doing incredibly well, distorting a lot of markets, um, I think, distorting a lot of people's benchmarks, making it quite difficult to run a run a portfolio based on value, based on investing into into assets that were attractively priced. So where does that set us up for 24? I think there's a strong argument to be made that you saw a lot of strength coming out of the Mag 7 in 23, and they're priced for absolute perfection. And I think that sets things up quite nicely if you want the positivity to continue, if you're in the soft landing camp, that you could start to see the positivity spreading out into other areas that didn't perhaps catch up with the Mag 7 in 2023, and you could start to see other more... uh, appropriately priced assets start to come back up towards more normal levels and that you know cutting through that jargon maybe that's that's an argument for value over growth this year but also importantly allows the narrative of positivity to continue and now so that that um, recovery narrative that we saw coming through in November and December to carry on it, you get the naysayers you get uh, you get a lot of the economists still thinking that we're in for a hard landing or a recession is still on the cards. And, you know, depending what data point you look at, there's quite a strong argument that that is going to be the case. And I think that's going to be bad for risk assets total. But if you do start to see a soft landing scenario play out, if you do start to see inflation coming back down towards its 2% target, and you do start to see rates coming off, the Fed, you know, cutting rates, you could start to see a nice environment for value to you know, to catch up with what growth did last year. Obviously, in the news, we've had uh, plenty of uh, value fan talk at the moment of uh, the news of Ben Whitmore leaving Jupiter. Mm. That sort of made made waves in the uh, fund news business at the moment. And so do you think it's valuable for companies to just provide value funds at the moment? Fund houses to provide fund house, value funds. Yes. I think it's important to have value funds in your locker as it were as a fund house you know value investing the notion of buying good quality companies whose you know whose stock prices become dislocated i think is an extremely powerful argument i think in the last 10 years especially since the gfc 2008 you've had you've had a lot of people buying into growth you've had a lot of people focusing solely on growth and value has certainly paid the price for that and you've seen that underperformance does that mean there's an argument to just leave that strategy i mean that would be tantamount to saying that value investing is is dead uh, because you no longer need that strategy in your locker i don't agree with that i think there are certain points and certain fund managers that are really really phenomenal value investors 
and value investing still remains a core pillar of what we do in the financial market you know and i think to the end investor whose assets we you know whose money we actually run i think it's important to remind ourselves that value investing resonates most with them which is finding a high quality company that's mispriced mm. and trying to buy in that buying into something that the market hasn't yet fully appreciated and waiting mm. for the market to appreciate your view is something that end clients really really understand buying high quality growth companies they also understand but to a to a perhaps lesser degree and i think owning value funds and importantly owning high quality value managers will always be important as long as investing into the value trend makes sense i think how how important do you think it is now to choose your value and your growth in a more granular sense um and what i mean here is it was interesting i suppose if you look at 2023 returns at least until we had the big q4 rally yeah some growth was better than other growth almost for yeah. example if you looked at um things like the bailey gifford funds which are very you know perhaps very high octane growth they kind yeah. of struggled a bit in large part whereas kind of other kind of growth strategies did better yeah and i suppose again obviously in value you have you know you're very relatively deep values, mm. your Schroeder recoveries and so on, and then you have your kind of lighter elements. I mean, maybe maybe that water's always been a bit muddy, but I wonder how how granular you want to get when you kind of think about those things. I think when you look at underlying fund exposure and what managers call themselves, you're definitely going to get a lot of differentiation. Two growth funds are not the same. Two value funds are not the same. There's a lot of work amongst the value community around how deep do value investors really go. And you've had a lot of value investors since 2008, which have actually done quite well. And when you look under the hood, they've not really been value at all because they've been forced to, even career risk has forced them into growth parts of the market just to survive. You've seen some true blue value managers retire since in that gap because it's just been too painful to be a true blue value investor so absolutely there's when you look under the hood there is a massive skew of what would constitute value and also what constitutes growth if you look in tech in 2023 there's large parts of the tech universe that were going through a recession there's large parts of the tech universe that were under pressure but because maybe the magnificent seven and this ai revolution kind of whitewashed the entire tech sector and everybody thought it was off to the races again. And then if you kind of extrapolate that through into growth funds, you'll start to see maybe some of the more true blue growth funds that are focusing on more core niche areas of the tech sector that were under pressure last year. And people think, well, why weren't you doing really well? The MAG7 was doing well, so why mm. didn't you do well? And I think that that gives way to the observation, as you said, that just because you own a growth fund doesn't mean that you're going to do really well doesn't mean that you're going to do really badly it calls for more granular research it calls for understanding exactly what you're owning just because you buy a growth fund doesn't mean that you know you've got the right call you need to really understand what you want from a growth fund and importantly understand what you want from a value fund and that involves more enhanced dd that involves more enhanced manager checks understanding who it is that you're partnering with what manager what style rather than just saying, yeah, that's a value fund. Let's have that. That's a growth fund. That's done quite well over the last five years. Let's buy that. Everybody in this market, especially in 2024 and in 2023, made a lot of noise, a lot of observations around the fact that we're in a new norm. You know, we're in a new environment. 
where the trades that worked in the past decade might not necessarily be the trades that work in the future. And you need to be more active. You need to look for inflation protection because you're not going to have a 2% environment anymore. And the way to do that is more, more DD, more understanding, more checks. Whereas perhaps the last environment, you could just get along a Bailey Gifford. You could just get along a, a, an agnostic growth strategy and that would have been fine. Um, yeah, it makes sense that we're in an environment that requires a more granular, a more myopic view of the market. And in that, you know, you have to understand exactly what you're owning. I think it's important. I suppose in some funds in recent years, you've also just seen so much more turnover. I mean, perhaps I'm thinking back now to 2022, but perhaps, yeah, that kind of diligence is uh, mm. even more just on that front as well, just to sort of keep keep track of what's going on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think diligent, due diligence, the regulator under consumer duty is pushing it that way, right? Is to have that, you know, is to have that due diligence oversight. And uh, yeah, I think in times gone past, you know, the market was going up, rising tide floats all boats. Um, you know, one growth strategy might not differ too much from a from another growth strategy. And when a market is in a bull market in a rally, people don't tend to question too much. The DD sends, tends to take a back step when returns are good and when people are very happy with where the market is going. And then when the market comes under pressure, that due diligence starts to get questioned. You know, for the first five or six years of my career, the word diversification was almost never mentioned. And then in 2023 and 2022, 2022 specifically, I mentioned the word diversification more in that one year than I did in my entire career combined because all of a sudden people started to get what diversification was and how important it was in a bear market because they hadn't seen one in the last 10 years. And I think enhanced due diligence goes hand in hand with that. You know, is that need to understand exactly what is under the hood and does that composition suit where we're going? Following on from that, obviously due diligence has been sort of pushed by the FCA in their consumer duty regulations that came mm. in force about mid last year. Um, how else has that affected the way that you do business? I think consumer duty has been quite healthy from our perspective. I think the overarching positive that comes out of consumer duty is that focus on client outcomes, is that focus on our clients investing into products they understand, our clients investing into products that are suited to their needs and their outcomes. And I think I think the fund industry's very much been set up to do very well, but own what it wants to own and everybody that wants to invest into it is along for that journey. But I think the consumer duty has put, rightfully so, focus back on the consumer. And I think that should affect every DFM, that should affect every MPS and every fund in questioning how they do due diligence, how they do research, how they price their products effectively and making sure that what they're offering is fit for purpose for the types of clients that are investing into it. And so that's changed the way that we operate. It's changed the way that we analyze the portfolios. It's changed the way that we calculate fair value. And also importantly, and I think this is one of the points of the FCA, is it's made managers constantly check that. And it's made managers constantly come back to that point and saying, what are we doing and how are we pricing it? And is that fair value? Are we doing right by our clients? And I think considering the entire industry runs off client assets, double checking that you're doing right by those assets, I think is quite important. I think it's, um, it should be a good North Star for the industry. There aren't any sort of negative 
consequences of that are in, in the sense of people um does that have the risk of sort of like constraining how active people are and how in terms of running a portfolio does it make people managers sort of like second guess what they're doing more or do you not think that's kind of a it's problem? a good question it whether it whether the knock-ons of having more stringent guide rails around active management and around funds and the way they're positioned uh, focusing on client outcomes does that alter the dna of the strategy that you're trying to run i think it will i think that will at least cause the question it will at least give a moment of pause to managers to say what is the type of strategy that we're running here and is that suited a towards you know consumer duty but also does that mesh with the long-term strategy? Does that mesh with the DNA of what we're trying to do here? And are they non-compatible or are they compatible? I hope that it doesn't. I hope that it doesn't make managers less willing to be active. I hope it doesn't make managers less willing to pick out true value where they see it or true opportunities where they see it for fear of falling foul of the regulator. Our industry is a dynamic industry. Our industry finds a way to deliver those outcomes. And I think if you have a manager that's passionate about a sector, that's passionate about a style of investing, they're going to find a way to continue to do that. And if the FCA does force people to re-question how they achieve that, I think you're going to get the industry adapting to it quite well. One of the more unique features of the TAM offerings is your Sharia compliant portfolios. We've not seen that often in our mm. research. And I think our listeners would probably love to hear more about this. Um, could you tell us about how this works um, yeah, surrounding sure. speculation and, and the rules in the Islamic faith. Sure, that, sure. That make it different from, you know, normal investing. Yeah, it, it, religious-based investing, which is exactly what Sharia is, mm. which is investing uh, in line with the rules of Sharia law, mm. which permeate everything, really. Um, and we're applying those rules to specifically to investing. If I could make it similar to anything, it would be to the ESG, the impact movement, sure. in that Sharia investing mandates that you're picking certain companies that avoid certain areas. Uh, that's negative screening. But again, that can come through to positive screening. But the Sharia landscape represents or services a part of the UK, which I still think is underserviced, which is the Muslim community. Mm. The size of the Muslim community in the UK is underserviced by the size of the investments that they can choose the professional regulated investments that they can choose. And it's amazing to see the growth in that part of the market. It's amazing to see the Sharia side of our business at times growing faster than the traditional side. Mm. As the Muslim community starts to look at the investable universe, but importantly, what invests in line with their religion and does it properly, which is what we try to do. And they come to the realization that there are products out there. There are professional services out there that can invest their assets properly. And in that respect, it's as much where we sit is in between the fund industry and the end client. And both are coming to the realisation that there are options. You've got the fund management industry that are coming to the realisation that that community is underserviced and that there are a wealth of assets there that need to be managed. Mm. Running those assets properly in line with Sharia law isn't a problem for these fund houses. They have the expertise. They have the technical expertise to do it. And as you've seen from different movements like with Ben and Jupiter, you know, if they don't have those expertise, they'll find those expertise. So it's fund houses understanding that the assets are there and there's a business opportunity, but also the community understanding that the, you know, the investment management industry is ready 
to help them, is ready to provide portfolios. The reason why TAM is in a unique position that it runs Sharia portfolios, and we've got a nine-year track record now, which is pretty long in mainstream assets, let alone religious-based investing, Mm. is that we face off against the advisory community. And all of our products have come as a result of conversations with advisors. When you speak to the advisory community, they speak back and they tell you what they're missing. They tell you what their maybe their aggregate client bank is looking for. They tell you what type of portfolio or what type of trend they're seeing from their underlying clients. And if you can hear that from quite a few different advisors, you can then start to say, well, hang on. If we can create a portfolio which clearly is suiting a part of the market where there seems to be underserviced, then you can start to create models and you can start to create investment solutions around that. So again, you know, nine years ago, we were chatting to the advisory community saying, you know, everyone has Muslim clients. Muslim clients are looking for investment solutions rather than more traditional assets, which are, you know, gold and property. Mm. Um, Have you ever thought about creating those? And as long as there are portfolios, as long as there are funds that we can choose, as long as there are investment options, we can build a strategy that sits in the middle of that. And so that's what we did. And we started making those. And if you lean on the fund's expertise in terms of adherence to Sharia investing and not buying funds that don't have a fatwa, which is you know a specific uh, sign-off from an, is- an Islamic board um, of scholars that look at all of the holdings in all of the funds that we invest into and make sure that everything from the bottom up is signed off from an Islamic compliance perspective you know, then those are some of the funds that you can start to look at. And important, you can then start to build screens and you can then start to look at conventional alpha, beta, uh, upside, downside captures. And you can start to build that professional MPS service for the Sharia market. So again, it, it's just about putting a different lens over it and making sure that that lens is watertight. And then you can run a portfolio. It's what I love about the MPS world. It's what I love about you know, in the part of the market that we sit is that there's so many different variants, there's so many different colours, there's so many different blends that you can do with a fund universe that continues to expand, that continues to release new options, that continues to look at new thematics, continues to look at different ways to capture alpha. And in that respect, that's why I think it's so good where we sit because we can take all of those opportunities and blend them to a greater degree that the fund universe, uh, that the fund industry can. They can provide us the tools. We can then create the products, which I think is really good. We've got time for one more question. So uh, finally, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing allocators in 2024? Well, that's a big question. It is a big one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> okay, here we go. I think the challenge is a lot about what we've been speaking about, right, which is this new regime, this new environment. Rather than 2% inflation being the max, maybe we're in an area where 2% inflation is the minimum we mm. can expect to see. You're not going to see rates coming back down to 0, 1, 1.5%, And what does that world look like? Because for most of our careers, we've been in a totally different environment. And that comes down to due diligence. That comes down to thematics. That comes down to researching exactly what you have in each fund and understanding, is that suitable for the environment? Is that suitable for the landscape that we're in? Um, it just requires another lens, talking about lenses. We've been talking about lenses all morning, you know, in, in retasking the way that you pull apart your portfolios and you reconstruct them for a world that is slightly different. 
I think you're going to see opportunities for more thematics. You're going to see opportunities for more funds that are carving out a niche, focusing on certain areas of the market, maybe designed to deal with inflation better. So I think it's you're going to see a challenge from people to have to retask their portfolios to deal with this environment. It's going to absolutely involve more active management. You're going to see more volatility. You're going to see inflation moving up and moving down and moving left and moving right and how that permeates the bond market and how that permeates the equity market. I think encouragingly asset allocators from the 60-40 area, from that MPS style, um, you're going to see that come back as you see that bond portfolio start to come back again, start to re-rate higher. But again, it's going to be active management. It's going to be emerging markets. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be how you deal with high yield in these portfolios. So I think the challenge is going to be understanding what is truly within your portfolio from the from the ground up, rather than just understanding from a fund manager what they own, and then how do you construct that, and then perhaps dealing with a lot more macro volatility, a lot more geopolitical volatility with the you know with the with the conflicts that we've got. Walking that back two steps, I think that just requires a lot more due diligence. I think that requires understanding a lot more about what exactly is under the hood of your product. I think consumer duties that way as well is pushing people in that direction, perhaps from a due diligence perspective as well. So I think that's going to be the greatest challenge. But there's also going to be the greatest reward there because you're going to find the fund universe stepping forwards towards that and providing more tools and providing more options for people to get involved with and providing especially the MPS or 6040 universe with a greater degree of options that they can use that are suited to this environment. So it's daunting for people. It's daunting for asset allocators. It's daunting for fund selectors. But I think the longer we spend in this environment, the more we become comfortable with where we're headed. I think people are going to start to take advantage of it. And you're going to see that threat perhaps turn into an opportunity. And I suppose that's the opportunity for 2025 and 2026 and 27 and on we go. Much to look forward to. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you, James, for coming in today. Uh, That was really interesting. And thank you, David, as well, for for joining us. Pleasure. I'm Joseph Wilkins, writer on Asset Galaxies. That was uh, James Penny, Chief Investment Officer at TAM Asset Management, and David Baxter, Funds Editor at Investors Chronicle. Thank you very much both, and take care all. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.